Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by by the one and only Angelina Stanford and the inimitable Tim McIntosh. You know, once you say that once, like on the previous episode, I said that once you say it, you can't stop. If you, As soon as you stop saying it, it like has implications to it. Oh no, I was just thinking that as you were like taking your breath and pausing, I was like, am I about to be downgraded? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tim's, it's now the one and only Tim. Um, Tim That's right. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we are here to discuss one final time, um, Murder Must Advertise by Dorothy Sayers. Um, today is the Q&A episode, uh, the, yeah, the Q&A episode, the the, the episode where you send us questions and we answer them or we give a sh- we you know we, we make an attempt to answer or we them. don't answer them <laughs> yeah or we just skip them entirely what we, we will get to as many questions as we can we make no promises about you know what that means exactly but we'll give it a shot and uh, so it's just a standard episode here we make no promises to do anything <laughs> right yeah we might not even talk about the book <laughs> oh well we'll talk about the book I just don't know how directly um First, how how are both of you, Tim? How's it going? It's going well. It's there's a little there's a little drama that I had to deal with this morning, which I'm not going to tell anybody about. But other than that drama, other than your you know your six thousand closest friends on close reads, yeah, right. <laughs> you can trust them, Tim. <laughs> other than that drama, well, even I mean that drama is not a big deal. I'm doing well. I recovered adequately enough to go on with my life after the Falcons loss. <laughs> and I'm excited that Flannery O'Connor is our next reading. Woot woot. <laughs> yeah. Contain yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Tim, the loss will never go fully away. I'm sure it won't. I'm it's sure it won't. It's going to be a scar on your soul. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why we're reading Flannery next. Um, Angelina, what about you? How's it going? It's going well. I've uh, I'm experienced this 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 early spring that uh, I think uh, I read like 80% of the country is experiencing where we didn't have February, you know, we just jumped straight to April. Mm. <laughs> so it's it's super nice and trees are blooming here and I'm so excited to see spring in North Carolina. I'm just My excited sister. to have four seasons. I have never had four seasons. I have 9 months of summer where I was from. So <laughs> yeah. this is this is awesome. <laughs> and when it was not summer in Louisiana, what was it? Was it fall or was it spring uh, was it undecided it was undecided, undecided like okay so my i this this is what i used to always say that there was those two deceptive weeks a year in louisiana where you would be like oh it's so nice and that's you, so i'd start the same monologue every year i'm going to put a swing out here and a hammock and i could read in the afternoons and nap and then at the end of that two weeks you're like what the no i'm going back inside and putting the air conditioner on that was <laughs> what was i thinking <laughs> <laughs> my, my sister sent me a text this morning and she was like hey i wish you could be here in atlanta i decided that i was gonna kind of work from location and i walked over to the high museum of art and there are children playing on the front lawn of the high and she was on the outdoor cafe and i just thought oh man that sounds great and what it's like probably 55 degrees there sis and she's like no it's 74 degrees oh yeah it's warm today yeah. what in the world it's been 70s yeah, all week i read an article about it like seriously oh it's some you know 
Santa Ana win or whatever, but you know, some weird thing that's happening where we basically didn't have winter this year. <laughs> We've had winter in a few years, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna scale back on the implications of that statement. But that's just my <laughs> observation. <laughs> well, um, how are you, David? Oh, I'm... you sound a little glum, buddy. Oh no, I'm good. I'm good. Just you know, just hanging out. I'm just listening. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got criticized. He's deceptive, I, deadpan. I got criticized last week for bringing you too much energy. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, it's a rock and a hard place over here for me. I don't know what to do. Um, well, I think, I think. Well, never mind. I'm not going to. I'll say no comment. <laughs> <laughs> the mysterious Tim McIntosh. <laughs> Well, we, as I said, we are here to answer questions. Before we do, I want to remind you to head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe if you have not done so already. Uh, subscribe to the network if you like um, or subscribe to just the Close Reads show. And then also please do leave a review if you would, um, whether it's a comment or a starred review. Both of those things are quite beneficial for us. Uh, so please do that if you like this show. And, of course, tell a friend. Um, you know, let's make let's make a deal. Everybody, tell one friend we get a lot more listeners. You know, seems, there we go. Seems simple. Um, no, I'm I'm not begging. What do you mean? Uh, <laughs> but uh, okay, this is a segue, but this totally reminds me of a, of a conversation I had with a couple of friends the other night, where I decided we should have a multi level marketing approach to classical education. <laughs> you tell six people, and they tell six people, and they tell six people, and all of a sudden, so like I'm gonna be at the top, and so I'm gonna be like Homer level. So I'm a, I'm like a Homer star ambassador diamond, and then. <laughs> Like underneath that is like a Virgil. Okay, I feel like this is going. <laughs> I just feel like we could benefit from a little MLM. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a great way for things to get out of control real quick. <laughs> so don't do that. Don't don't do that with close reads. This is not a you know this is not a multi level thing. We don't. I said one person, not six. Yeah, Jeez. but we will be sitting on the top of a pyramid that's completely empty. Like it's not like we're making any money. <laughs> well. Yeah, but someone is. Like the next people below us, they're going to find a way to monetize it. That's it. That's <laughs> always I know we want to get to Dorothy Sayers questions. Can I just tell a brief story about my experience with a multi-level marketing scheme? Can I do that? <laughs> you probably should. I, this is you sold, many you sold years Mary ago. Kay? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. This is me coming in contact. This is not me advocating. So I, I went to the Olive Garden. Uh, when I was at work, this is this is probably 15 years ago. I had no experience with multi-level marketing schemes, so I'm sitting there reading my book at Olive Garden, which was that just made me so happy. I'm taking a break from my hard-charging job. I'm reading my book, and this guy sits down by himself at a table next to me. Strikes up a conversation, really warm, friendly guy, and. He says, yeah, I'm, I, I travel a lot, you know, and it's kind of hard when I come to Atlanta because I just don't know anybody. But, you know, like maybe when I'm in town sometime, we'll get together and play tennis or, or basketball. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. OK, yeah, sure. So I give him my business card. Don't think anything of it. Two months later, I'm in my office and I talked to I'm talking to a friend of mine on the phone, Tom, and I get another phone call. The phone call is from the guy at Olive Garden. And I'm like, what in the world? This guy actually is calling me. So I say, Tom, hold on. I click over to the other guy, Olive Garden. 
and Olive Garden says, hey, Tim, I was wanting to know if you'd want to get together tonight and like talk about some business opportunities. And I was like, business opportunities? <laughs> so I click over to Tom. I said, hold on. I got to end a call. I click over to Tom, and I said, Tom, this is the weirdest conversation I recounted to him. And he says, listen to me. You've got to ask Olive Garden if this is about a multi-level marketing scheme. And I said, Tom, it's not about that. It's not about that. This isn't, I trust this guy from Olive Garden. Because <laughs> y'all have that bond over the breadsticks. <laughs> That's right, over the bottomless salad bowl. And Tom says, just ask him. So I hang out with Tom and I go back and I said, hey, Olive Garden, before we get too deep into this conversation, I just got to ask you, is this, is this about a multi-level marketing scheme of any sort? The other line goes silent. And then about five seconds later, he said, Tim, this is a unique business opportunity that, yes, would involve um, a multi-level marketing scenario. But I really think that you – and I was like – and I said, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I'm just not interested. <laughs> and then he said – I will remember this always for some reason. He said, so Tim, do you have any other friends like yourself who are young, upwardly mobile, and business aggressive that you would like, a re like to recommend to me that I contact? And I said, no, none of my friends are young, upwardly mobile, <laughs> business aggressive types at all. So I, sorry, I just can't recommend any of this to you. And that was the end of the conversation. Do you guys think that Lord Peter Whimsey would have been at the top of a marketing, multi-level marketing campaign? I kind of feel like he might get into that a little bit. Like maybe might, as cover. Like as a hobby, just yeah. to like entertain himself while he, had, you know, while he kept his like, you know, his sly, sarcastic grin about the whole thing exactly like it might be his cover while he accumulated millions yeah. <laughs> to buy books yeah which is I, what I Lord peter whimsy do that he has the kind of charisma that you would need to have to bring people into the fold oh absolutely the product <laughs> he's got a solid sidekick and bunter to do all of the you know right the unpleasant bits <laughs> <laughs> oh dear okay so let's answer some questions why don't we <laughs> let's do that oh wait before we do that i want to say something and it's not about multi-level marketing it is related to this show uh -huh. so i listened to a podcast that was some lectures about dorothy sayers and the guy was british and i heard him pronounce it the british way and now i get it wait pronounce what Doroth, Dorothy L. Sayers, how we've been saying it. I heard him say the British way. And oh. so I heard him say it the way Dorothy would, you know how we had the whole Facebook debate about is it Sayers or Sayers, right? Well, in the British accent, the difference between what we're saying and what he's saying is very little. Uh, it's well, very little. Well, that's the, so. I listened to some lectures of a British person and I had, could tell no discernible difference between what i was saying and what she was saying so yeah like i listened to it several times because he did the l like he said dorothy l sayers like he said the l you know which i knew is what she says you have to say the l to get the last name right and so i kept listening to it and i was like he's saying it he's saying it like she's saying it but it was so so light in the difference like i'm not exactly sure which what accent or pronunciation she was taking issue with in this letter, but I don't, I don't think she, I don't think we're the target here. I mean, we're just <laughs> dumb Americans anyway. What do we know? Yeah, exactly. She didn't even care about us. No, we're from the colonies. What do, you know? 
upstarts. Yeah. <laughs> the wilderness. Okay, so let's answer some questions. Um, we and people used the hashtag close reads Q and A to submit these. So feel free to do that for future Q and A episodes. This is a callback. This first question, we'll go with this one first because it's a callback to our Pride and Prejudice conversation. This person, uh, Laura, I'm going to say your name on on the show because so, you posted it on a public Facebook group. So uh, we're going to go with that. Uh, Laura looked or looked or lucked or something. Um, I'm assuming the T is not silent. Uh, she says, I propose that Whimsy trumps Darcy by knowing when and how to laugh at himself. Thoughts? Question mark. So really, the only mm. question is thoughts. So feel free to talk about whatever you want because her question is, do you have thoughts? Uh, if the question is, do I have thoughts? The answer is in a, uh, unequivocally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Next. But, <laughs> but what about? Okay, so whimsy trumps Darcy by knowing when and how to laugh at himself. Tim, I'm gonna let okay. you take the first crack at that because I know Angelina's ready for this one. This this trumps mean is superior in character and virtue is that what trump's mean well define or, it like you want i totally um, read that question as he's hotter okay 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 <laughs> i don't we have I, to ask laura i guess the question then is is this a temperamental difference between the two of them or is it a like deep character difference between the two of them I tend to think that it's more of a temperamental difference. I tend to think that the reason that Darcy wouldn't laugh at himself, yeah, I think at the beginning of the novel, he needed to kind of, he needed to learn and grow up. And I think he was a little bit full of himself. But that's part of what made the book so good is that he matures. He, we see him kind of sprout wings and fly. And I got I, I don't know. I kind of feel like he, by the end of the book, could probably laugh at himself. It seems like Peter Whimsey, from page one, is willing to laugh at himself, which makes me think it's a temperamental difference, not a deep character difference. Mm, yeah. And I, my suspicion is that Laura is simply saying that she prefers Whimsy over Darcy by knowing when and how to laugh at himself. I, you know, I, I, I don't read the question necessarily as being, you know, an accusation like of moral superiority or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, but but. certainly <laughs> someone, your, your uh, preference for someone is going to um, be driven by a number of different factors. So what do you, um, what do you think, Angelina? I've heard that you have thoughts. I do about lots of things. <laughs> I'll try to narrow them to this scope. Um, well, you know, I've made no secret about the fact that Whimsy's my boy. Uh, so, you know, that's where that's where I'm going to land on that question. But <clears throat> with regard to that, to the to the issue of his ability to laugh at himself, I think there's a few different factors at play. Yes, personality. Um, two, Whimsy's older. Whimsy's much older than Darcy, even when you read oh, him in the right. first book. He's much older. Um, <clears throat> so we don't know what, you know, 20-year-old Whimsy would have been like. Secondly, <clears throat> as we said before, uh, Peter is the second son. Um, the Duke of Denver is a lot more like Darcy in that he feels the weight of the responsibility and he feels a certain need to be serious because of the role he has to play. Mm. Um, and Peter is free from that. So we're, it's almost unfair because we're comparing a second son to a first firstborn. Mm. Uh, and they have totally different social expectations. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and also... 
Peter's humor could, it, it, I do think it's personality, but I do also think it's a bit of a coping mechanism as well. Oh. Hmm. And, and coping with, what do you think he's coping with? Well, I think he's coping with a lot of things, right? Like one is how, how does he, how does he interact with people? The, the humor is, you know, it's, it's an icebreaker. It's a way that he can sort of not be taken too seriously in, in a way that might be intimidating, if that makes mm. sense, right? Like kind of takes the pressure off of himself to be, I mean, he, he enjoys playing the role of the buffoon through all of these books, even in his own family. And it's really funny because, of course, that's not who he is at all. But it's it's the persona he portrays. And, you know, he has to do, in, with, with Harriet, he has to sort of work to help her see through that persona um, to what's really underneath. So, you know, I think it's a coping mechanism. Also, he's been through the war and he's got all this intense post-traumatic stress. And so lots of people use humor in those kinds of situations. I mean, I'm just speculating, of course, because we don't right. see Peter when he's young. We don't see Peter <clears throat> before the war. We only see him after the war. And I don't doubt that a lot of it is just his personality. But a lot of it also is that he's got a totally different set of expectations in his family, in his life. Right, right. Yeah. An interesting question. Very interesting question. But uh, what, it is interesting that they both come from, you know, their, their specific circumstances are different in that Darcy's the older and Lord Peter's the middle, but they both come from, you know, old money. Mm -hmm. So they come from uh, somewhat similar circumstances, uh, at least as, as far as the whole family goes, even if their responsibilities within that are are a little bit different, as you said. Okay, uh, David, you're a firstborn. I'm a firstborn. Do you feel like you are kind of, um, as the firstborn, less inclined to chuckle at yourself compared to the secondborn son in your family? <laughs> uh, oh, I want to answer this so bad, but I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> as opposed to whether my brother is apt to laugh at himself? Yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, no, I don't think Matt's particularly apt to laugh at himself. <laughs> okay, that's what I was going to totally say, so we're in agreement on that. Uh, but, I mean, Matt's, you know, I mean, he, I, he, people listening don't know him, so I don't you know you get too much into that. But people who, you guys know him. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, but, but see, my family is, like, German, and there's a thing with, a lot of Germans where they're not apt to laugh at themselves, let alone much of anything else. So, um, that's probably not a, it, my family probably isn't one that fits the bill on that. My sister, Larissa, she's apt to laugh at herself because she has no other choice, but, um, <laughs> uh, she would agree with that if she was listening. By the way. Um, but yeah, she so, does listen. She does listen <laughs> to this show. Um, I anyway, you, of course. Um, but anyway, yeah, shout out to Larissa. Anyway, let's move on to another question because we've got a bunch and we've got to get through them. Okay. Or at least okay. as many as we can. Okay, this is an interesting one uh, from uh, Tawny, I think is how you pronounce her, her name. How much do you think that Miss Meatyard is a bit of a self-portrait of Sayers in her role as a copywriter, especially as we got to see her more closely in the last few chapters? Angelina, thoughts? So well, this got an interesting discussion on the Facebook page. It was an, I I had not thought about that because I associate Dorothy with so strongly with Harriet, but uh, the 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 general consensus among Sayers fans was that she she usually has some part of herself in some female character in each of the stories, and that yes, Miss Mediard was definitely 
some part of Dorothy Sayers. In, yeah, in what did I just call her? Meat Yard. Yeah, I did, didn't I? <laughs> I just had a uh, a little bit of Another a brain for a cemetery brain cramp there. Yeah. Okay. Go. Yeah. Go on. Anyway, go on. No, that's all I was gonna say. Yes. So yeah, she's she's the smart observer, and I would totally, I could totally see Dorothy Sayers as the smart observer. I mean, nobody writes detective novels who's not incredibly perceptive and observant in general, right? Well, no, definitely not. Uh, really, nobody can write a book at all successful, a piece of fiction at all successfully if they're not somewhat observant. Uh, Tim, right. do you have any thoughts on this? So, No, I don't. I don't. A bit of a self-portrait of Sayers and her role as a copywriter. I just don't know that I could like paint enough of a portrait of Dorothy Sayers to say that it aligns with some character in the book. I just don't feel like I know her personality that well. I would have to observe her. So somebody commented on this question saying, I think Mediard is a kind of pun of Sayers with etymological shenanigans, which I think is a fun comment there. (laughs) Etymological shenanigans is a uh, fun phrase. (laughs) And where would the etymological shenanigans come from? I'm not entirely. I don't know. I don't know the entire context of this. Okay. So, Cindy Marsh, get on there and respond. Let us know what you mean. Um, yeah, come on, Cindy. Okay, so that's one that I guess you guys are going to have to answer because we don't know, Tawny. Sorry. <laughs> uh, someone who you know, I guess the question is: um, Is she reflecting when she writes this character on her on herself? Like, is it meant to be a mirror of her own experiences? And that's where someone who's more familiar with the with Sarah's biography is probably going to have to answer that a little bit more closely um so we we will be happy to hear from whoever knows about that so go ahead and comment on that for us um okay ian uh long time listener i guess i don't know how long he's been listening actually but often comment often commenter (laughs) common commenter ian uh shout out to ian uh, he says, I was wondering if the host would talk a bit about the current state of the liturgy of mysteries in today's culture. He says, oh, dear. he says, we have the dominance of the police. Pro- <laughs> Great response to him. Oh, oh no, I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> that was okay. I felt that in my heart too. <laughs> I just had to speak it. You guys, who doesn't I read stuff at all. <laughs> so, um, so, so he goes on, though. He says, we have the dominance of the pol- police procedural, say that 10 times fast, on TV, the massive cozy mystery industry in published fiction, and the literary snobbishness about the superiority of hard-boiled detectives or film noir over the golden age fiction of Sayers, Christie, uh, Taymarsh, etc. Do you agree with this preference, and why or why not? Uh, Angelina, you got any thoughts? Well, this is a little bit out of my wheelhouse. I feel like you might be much more able to answer this than me. Um, and I don't know that I have much more to say about it than the things I've already said in the show. You know, I, I do think the, the police procedurals are, are very interesting um, because they seem to be so intentional about blurring lines between good guys and bad guys. Um, whatever code the police are following, I'm not really sure I understand what it is other than get the guy, right? Um, and, and I'm, I'm personally very uncomfortable with a lot of police procedurals because they show police doing so many illegal things to get the guy. And you walk away at the end of these shows feeling like that was the right thing to do because you got the guy. And I'm of course just losing my mind that what about the constitution? You can't beat a confession out of a guy. You, you can't do that. Even if it means he doesn't get caught, you can't beat a confession out of a guy, you know? So I struggle with those shows because I feel like, I feel like we're left asking what is justice a lot of times. 
Yeah, which I, I guess some people felt they were asking that question at the end of this book as well. But I well, do think we she, were like, certainly asking the question. Yeah, of I think she absolutely just. is raising the question of what is justice. But you know, Peter Whimsey doesn't beat a confession out of anybody, right? Mm-hmm. He's got some sense of honor mm-hmm. that he's operating under. Uh, so I think what's going on here, I think Ian might be getting at two different questions. So on the one hand, he's talking, you know, we talked about the liturgy of mysteries, how, how there's a, the way stories are structured as a sort of liturgy. Um, so he's asking about that. And and if we can talk about the state of the liturgy of mysteries in today's culture. And then he also brings up the idea of literary snobbishness, snobbishness about the superiority of the hard boiled detectives or the film noir over the golden age fiction. So it's interesting because I think that that latter question – wait, what did I just say? Which one? I don't even know which one was the latter one anymore. This, the uh, the question about literary snobbishness. Um, I'm not thinking on my feet very well today. Uh, I think that that one's a matter of perspective because I think if you like – if you tend to be more inclined toward the hardball detectives or the film noir as I am, then you tend to view the golden age fiction – as the one that is uh, praised more commonly. And if you love the golden age, then you probably look over at people praising the hard-boiled detectives in the film noir and seeing that being praised more. So I think it's a matter of perspective. Like, I think maybe we're just, you know, whatever side you're on, you see the other side is getting more praise. Um, And I could be wrong about that. Um, So I don't know that, I don't know that I've ever thought about, um, film noir as being, you know, as a lot of the film noir or the hardboiled detectives as having a lot of snobbishness surrounding them. But that might be because that's my preference. <laughs> um, what do you think about that? The hardboiled, I mean, I love a good film noir, but the hardboiled detective, as, and I've read some of them, um, it's not my preference, but I never thought that there was any snobbishness leading in that direction. Like in terms of it being more serious literature, I mean... Guess I've never thought about it, but I didn't have any any perception that that's the way it was perceived. Well, you know, if you look at like spy novels, even someone like Graham Greene, who wrote what sort of were kind of borderline hard boiled spy novels with a little bit of a literary tint to them. I mean, he called his though he called those books that he wrote entertainments. Like he referred to his other things as literature and, and those as entertainments, and so there was kind of a built in um, uh, humility about them or a built in um, lack of like he didn't take them too seriously. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know that you, I don't know, I don't know that I'm not, not that I'm saying Sayers or Agatha Christie or whatever took their golden age fiction more seriously. Um, I, frankly, I think they both should be taken seriously from a literary perspective, but, um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that might take, we might have to do some more, some research, some data on that. So can't answer that part of the question very well for you, Ian. Sorry. <laughs> Um, but what, but there is a, there is a liturgy to the way mystery is presented, you, mm. you know, even today. Right. And part of that liturgy, I think you're getting at Angelina, when you talk about how it's not always clear whether the, the good guy is the good guy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because part of the liturgy is, is the, uh, is the gray area. So would you say that, um, a story that, that avoids that gray area is inherently better is that inherently better mystery story and tim you can answer that too that's for either of you say the say the question again david so is a mystery story that avoids that gray area that gives you clear senses of good and evil you know clear representations of good and evil is that inherently better than one that deals more in the gray area this is a deep like that is a world view question it is (laughs) i'm 
going to oh say no. Goodness. I'm going to say no. It's not inherently better to avoid the gray. <clears throat> I think that you it has to be skillfully done to avoid falling into nihilism because there is a truth in which, I mean, the world that we're in right now has a lot of gray. I mean, part of what we're struggling as being human beings, right, is learning, trying to figure out how to interpret all the gray that we're in. We wish everything was clearly black and white. And that's part of, of course, why I find the world of fairy tales so kind of soul reordering, right? I can go in there and I can breathe. I know what's going on. I've got my bearings, right? And then I can come back out in the, in the gray and the muck. So I, but I don't think there's anything inherently better because you can have a, a black and white story that's so badly done, so oversimplified that you don't actually learn any kind of real lesson from it, anything, mm -hmm. anything that helps order your soul because it's just too oversimplified. Right. Uh, and you can have a, a story that's so gray. I mean, I've read some of those modern books where I'm just, I'm like crushed by the nihilism in it when I'm done, right? Like I just think, oh, I would have been better off not entering that world. That is just, I, ooh, I, I got to go read some fairy tales now, right? Um, but, it, but it can be done well. I think we saw Dorothy Sayers do it well in this book and, and, and that it wasn't a tidy little ending, right? It was a hard ending. And, and the question of what is the right thing to do was, was hard to know. And, and, and so I, I like film noir. I understand what it's trying to do when it, when it raises questions of what's the good guy and the bad guy. I don't, as long as it doesn't cross the line and, and say there is no good, I think it's okay to question where is the good, right? And, and part of what film noir does is question whether or not the good can be found in institutions or you have to go outside of the institution to find good. Um, and I mean, that's, that's a very reasonable question to ask. So yeah, as long as it, I, I'm very okay with the gray if it's dealt with sophisticatedly and doesn't just reject the idea that goodness exists, which sometimes that's what ends up happening. Yeah. That's when I feel crushed by it. Uh -huh. Yeah. The, you have to allow for the, for the possibility that good is the, the, for the potential that good could 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 in theory overcome like it has to always right. be a possibility right even if you feel like in in terms of the plot i don't know which way is up because man how much we feel like that's so often in our lives and that's okay and that's a good and worthy story to tell right yeah it's interesting angelina i i think what i hear you saying is that if a mystery or a crime novel is prescriptive in favor of nihilism, you would say no. If it's descriptive, you would say yes. Oh, right, right. Huh. <clears throat> sure, that makes sense. So then, so then you would say that a book that is uh, prescriptive in its presentation of nihilism is an inherently lesser form of literature. Well, yeah, because I, I would, I would think that it's false, right? That it's that it's trying, it's trying to, it's trying to convince me of a lie, right? That there's no good and there's no order. But if you're trying to convince me that sometimes you can't see the good, sometimes you can't see the order, sometimes right. everything is so confusing, you don't know what's good. Then yes, I totally buy that. So it's is another way of saying it. If the book asks you at the end to assent to a world, to acknowledge that a world that our world um, is a nihilistic world, if the book asks you to say yes to that, your answer would be it's flawed in some deep, like it, its worldview is cracked in some deep way. Whereas if it says, if the book says, look, 
the world as we experience it oftentimes seems nihilistic, then you would say, well, no, I could, I could still say that's a good book because it's not necessarily asserting a worldview that I think is um, like bankrupt in some way or cracked in some deep way. Is that right? Right. I don't know that I would articulate it like that, but yes, yeah. I agree with what you're saying. I would more likely at the end of the, a book like that say this didn't have the ring of truth. There's yeah. something missing. Um, and But that if it's really – you know, it depends because sometimes I'll find myself sort of excusing a book or a movie and saying, well, I can see how from their perspective this is how it looked. And I have to remind myself that's not the full picture. Yes, right. So I guess I'm in the gray about all of this too. Well, no, I, I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm kind of asking you questions because I'm in, in my questions, I'm trying to kind of articulate what I think. Right. I'm pretty sure we're all, all on, the, on the same page about this, right? I mean, I want to feel like the art that I encounter is true, mm. but truth is not always simple. Mm. So I'm okay with a complicated truth. And I'm okay with saying that something's a cautionary tale. You know, a lot of my favorite books are dystopian novels, which, which, which end so despairingly. But see, I, I don't walk away feeling despair at the end of those books because I read them as a cautionary tale. I read them and as, you know, get out dystopia, before it A dystopia is always trading on some level of justice. You know, you, you read... Um, 1984, well, in 1984, the main character does overtly say inside his own mind, this is a corrupt world. But even something like Brave New World, there's not much of an, um, a counterpoint to just the kind of like horrific dystopia that is Brave New World. But the reader yes. is offended by it because the reader's um, conviction that he brings to the book is this is unjust or this is deeply tainted this is there's something inhuman about what's going on here yes, yes. and so a dystopia kind of necessarily I, I don't think that you could really have a dystopia if you weren't trading on um the reader's internal sense that uh human beings are meant to live in a certain way justice looks like x no, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And of course, that's what that's what those authors are trying to do. So Huxley's not trying to convince you this is what the world looks like. He's trying to provoke in you a response that says, no, this is not what humanity is. Yeah. And wouldn't you say, okay, can we carry that over into detective novels? Couldn't you say then um, that if we end a detective novel and it's even, mm, if it's nihilistic, the strings don't come together. The bad guy escapes. The good guys are not really good guys. When we read a story like that, isn't there something most times inside of us that says, no, this is wrong? And that's the part where it seems like the description actually invokes, pulls out of us a sense of justice. It, it, it um, so I, I, have a, I have a question about that. Yeah. Do you think that we say, no, this is wrong when that happens? Or no, this is not how um, we want it to be? You, I think it's I think you, that's both. You can say, no, it's not how it ought to be. But does that make it not true? 
like isn't it true that that it it doesn't make it false that there's the good guy might not be fully good or the bad guy not fully evil you know um because that's actually probably more true than the idea that that one is completely good and one is completely evil right that's more true than than the, mm-hmm. than the you know the alternative so mm-hmm. may, so there's the there's this sense of um uh chaos that comes that arises um within us because because of what we want it to be true right or, we'll, or right. how it feels like it should be um in an ideal world because well because everything has been thrown into chaos and so the well-ordered soul i suppose um feels that feels that sense of chaos more you know hope, hopefully anyway right I mean, does that make sense or am i misreading yeah. what you're yeah. saying no that makes sense that makes sense go, okay go on so i i guess i just wanted to clarify if that's what you were saying there yes but i think the answer to your question though david is both i mean if you read I think when we get to the end of a crime story that looks, that describes a world that's nihilistic, not necessarily advocates that the world is nihilistic, but just describes a nihilistic world. Mm -hmm. I think we get to the end and we say two things kind of in the same voice. One, yep, that's the way that the world is. I've seen it myself. This, This book is true in its description of the world. And then I think that most times there's also this other voice that says, and it's not as it ought to be. Because even in recognizing that the good guys are not the good guys, we're still invoking a good. We're still saying this is a good. We ought, uh, uh, the good cop ought to be an honest one, ought to treat all citizens with equal justice. No, I I agree with that. And so really it boils down to sort of this uh well it boils down to art, right? And how artfully the author handles these sophisticated themes. And so if it's done well, then you walk away just feeling, you know, kind of having goodness affirmed by its lack of it being in the book, right? Mm-hmm, Versus if it's mm-hmm. maybe not so artful. And what I mean by artfully is not necessarily literary skill, but like, you know, is it reflective of a true reality? Um if it's if it's not artfully done, if it's more like um, there's some authors that come to mind who I think are much more committed to their philosophy than they are to art. And so they end up really hammering home an idea about what they think the world is like versus just what they actually see. Then then at the end of those books, I say this doesn't have the ring of truth. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's, let's use that as a jumping off point for this next question then. So Leah asks uh well she doesn't really ask she just sta- states she said she says i would like to hear more about sayers and her thoughts on what makes good christian art this was mentioned briefly in one of the podcasts previously which is true so i suppose if we want to rephrase that we sh- as a question we would say could you please speak more about sayers and her thoughts on what makes good christian art mm-hmm. angelina i'll let you touch on oh, that first man. I, knew you, I knew you were gonna okay tim Hit hit the wicket there. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. I need to read Mind of the Maker and think about that again. I, I all I can all I can recall off the top of my head is she talks a lot about the same idea Tolkien does as Christian artists as sub creators, right? And acting acting like God. And she says that the Christian artist is the person who can come the closest to the act of creation like God because um, so somebody who makes a table, for example, is starting with things that already exist, a tree. Right. And so all he can do is sort of craft something from things that already exist. Mm. 
but that the artist is is creating out of nothing, right? In a sense, right? Out of their own mind, their own imagination, uh, and so in that sense, you're you're creating worlds out of nothing, and 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 you're you're being like God in a good way. We're being imitators. So that's about all I can remember about what Dorothy has to say about Christian art. I- I will tell you one of the things that I recall from the mind of the maker is that she puts a heavy, heavy emphasis on, oh my gosh, I love this so much, that (laughs) good artist Christian art. And if you want to be a good Christian artist, like perfect work on your technique more than you work on um, exerting some sort of a doctrinal point. Yes. And what what she thinks is, is like, if you are a Christian, I'm going to talk about plays because that's the my preferred medium. If you are a Christian playwright, work on the technique of learning how to write a great play, and your convictions they're just going to show up. They're just, you're not going to have to like cram it in there. If you're um, a Christian and you write plays then your view of the world is going to imbue, it's going to um, illuminate the text that you write. And what I like so much about Dorothy Sayers, and you guys are going to have to keep me from going on a rant, is that for her, it is all about work on your technique. And I don't think this is just a good message for Christian artists. This is a good message for artists, period. Like, Anything that you want to do as an artist, whether you want to be a painter or um, you want to be in the ballet or you want to be a musician or you want to be a playwright, there are people who have gone before you and we need to learn from them. It doesn't mean that we need to copy them straight out, but like anything, you learn from the people that have mastered techniques. I I think part of the reason that's so important for me is that – there's such a drive in our educational system to celebrate the individual voice. And there's such a muted adherence to the kind of <laughs> the witness of the artistic saints or the tradition of great art making mm-hmm. um, that what it does is it basically stunts the ability of budding artists to thrive because they're told special snowflake it's your unique voice that is going to drive you forward and i think that isn't that is a partly true message that it's a partly false message yes Each well yeah the, your unique voice never exists in a vacuum that's the whole point it right? never exists in a vacuum and learn from those who went before you take a mentor on i mean like the really great ones always took on a mentor and mm-hmm. they said um I want to write like this person. I want to paint like this person. And eventually the goal is to surpass the master. And if a good master or a good teacher um, should want that same thing, should want the pupil to surpass himself or herself, that's what the ultimate goal of teaching is to encourage your students to be smarter than what you've done. So anyway, I really like uh, Dorothy Sayers' approach that the artist – The artist who wants to serve God is the artist that pursues greatness in technique in art making. Hmm. And and the the doctrinal convictions, the worldview, 
that the artists have naturally comes out. Yes. So it's really a question of what's what's leading it, right? Is it the worldview that's leading it or the art that's leading it? And I love that you said this doesn't just apply to Christian artists because this is – I'm going to go on a rant here. This is my big beef with Ayn Rand. She's not a good novelist. She's she a be, terrible Because novel. she's not a good artist, right? She's a philosopher. And so I read her books and I think now, okay, I'm a thousand pages into this thing and I see that you're making your case for your philosophy. But in my head, I'm screaming, this is not how human beings act. This doesn't have the ring of truth. You mm -hmm. have never seen a person respond in real life. You, this is how you want them to respond according to your philosophy. This is not how people act. Mm -hmm. So to me that's a big part of is something good art does it have the ring of truth to it is this yeah. a reflection of a real human experience and not just what you wish people would act so yeah she drives me crazy she drives me crazy. Oh, she's such man. a bad writer i'm so, so glad we agree on this so um when so this question strong. came up i i looked up this article from an old episode of touchstone i think it's let me i'm looking let me look it up here I think oh, it's so David researched his answers. We're May just hung out to dry here. Well, no, no, no. It's, it's from May of 2000, the issue of Touchstone. You can find it on touchstonemag.com. And the article is called The Mind of a Maker, An Introduction to the Thought of Dorothy L. Sayers Through Her Letters. By Adam, and the article is by Adam Schwartz. And in oh, it, nice. there's, there's a section where he specifically touches on what she is saying. So I'll, I'm going to read these two paragraphs here because I think they, they're really, they have a nice summary of what Tim's saying. Not that you didn't do a good job, but he adds some quotes here from her that I yeah. think are, are really, really good. So he says, given the close connection Sayers asserted between artistic creativity and Christian doctrine, and this is, he had talked about that previously in the article. Uh, he says, is it appropriate to label her output that of a quote, Christian writer? Like Graham Greene, Sayers was troubled by such designations. She contended that if a writer, quote, has a religion, then that religion will color everything he writes, whether the subject mm. is ostensibly religious or not, end quote. But she insisted that Christian authors must respect the distinct demands of each different discourse they write in. To her, piety could not excuse poor craftsmanship, as, quote, for any work of art to be acceptable to God, it must first be right with itself. The artist mm -hmm. must serve God in the technique of his craft, end quote. Because reason and matter are in intrinsically good gifts of God, works of human minds and hands that are made well according to the conventions of their genres have a holiness apart from any specifically sacred purpose. And conversely, if, quote, work is not true to itself, it cannot be true to God or anything else. Bad art is bad Christianity, end quote. As mm -hmm. Sayers, oh my gosh, testify, girl. Yeah, yeah. So preach, preach, dot. We got as, as Sayers concluded in one of her most important essays, quote, the only Christian work is good work well done, end quote. So the whole article by Adam Schwartz has a lot more to say about this and about Sayers in general. So if you want to learn more, it's a great, great piece to check out. I think touchstonemag.com. It's free. It's in their archives. And again, it's just called the, the Mind of a Maker. Somebody um, please put a link to that on our Facebook page because I want to read that. I'll post it in the show notes as well. Um, cool. And we, we link over to that. Um, I know that we probably need to move on. I just yep. want to say one more thing. Yep. I saw a movie several years ago that I was so looking forward to read, to, to seeing. It was called Amazing Grace. Did you guys see this movie? This Is this the about, one about Wilberforce? Yes. It was about Wil William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce. It's an exaggeration to say he single-handedly ended slavery in Great Britain, but it's not that barely, much it's of barely an exaggeration. An exaggeration. <laughs> and so this is a story about William Wilberforce, and I was so looking forward to it. What a great movie. I mean, what, what a great subject for a movie. And that movie 
drove me up the wall because it was so imbued with piety and it failed on a technical level. It absolutely was just so poorly done. The acting was good. The directing was good. Lighting was good. Camera work was good. The script was so appalling. And for me, the biggest failure in technique was they made the bad guys in the movie these sniveling, spineless cowards who were not appealing. Their message was... Um, there was nothing powerful about the enemies of William Wilberforce. And I just thought, that's the reason this movie fails. Because if you were in Great Britain at the time and you didn't recognize all of the entrenched power, prestige, wealth associated with slavery, and you can't make that case to your audience in a way that's powerful enough for your audience to actually feel somewhat compelled by the enemy, then, the, then you were just – you're not doing your job as a playwright, or in this case, a screenwriter. You're so right, Tim. And uh, we do that all the time. We do it in sermons. We do it when we teach our students and kids. We're constantly putting up straw men as the enemy's argument. Like, see how easy it is just to tear these down, right? And the first time that they encounter a real tempting argument yes. to evil, they don't know what to do with it because we've been giving them these straw men instead of saying, look, Let's confess. There's a lot of tempt. This is an evil argument, but it's tempting, right? It makes sense on some level. You feel right. drawn to it, and this is how to resist when you feel drawn to evil. Instead, we act like only a moron would take that position, and you're not a moron. And so they go out into the world, and they are just suckers Absolutely. for this stuff. Absolutely. And when we point to our, to like what we think of as like quintessential great art of the last century, like let's just talk about Tolkien, his enemies are so powerful. Right. Sauron is so powerful. I and can see myself in the bad guys. That, totally. That's, and when we see like and, and the temptation of the ring, of taking on the ring and all the power associated with that, that temptation is almost the central plot line for the main character. Are you kidding? That The whole insight that you are tempted to do evil because you think you can bring good out of it, that's profound. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, this is my biggest complaint against Christian art, especially narrative art, is that it makes the bad guys um, – they're nothing that anyone would tempt anyone toward. They're just cowards. They're these spineless, backwards cowards. And that's uh, it's just an absolutely recipe for a technique of failure. Well, and you know, it's because people – you see it in movies in particular, but you, you, people are afraid to present something that is tempting, as Angelina said, mm -hmm. or like mm -hmm. they're they're afraid to present evil as it truly is. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why. I think the the fear of temptation, the the darkness of it, all those things play into it. Oftentimes, quote faith based art is meant to be for the whole family. Yeah. Um, so those things all play into it. It's a complicated, complicated thing going on. Um, <clears throat> man, that's why you choose allegory because then you can do it, and you know it's not assault on your soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's see here. We are running out of time really quickly here. I've got one final question we're gonna have at the end, but before that, let's go with um, let's go with this one. So Susan says, um, Lord Peter Whimsey feels she, LPW in particular. 
feels the difficulty and sorrow at the end of this book. Um, she says she hasn't read all of the LPW books yet, but the most recent one she read was Busman's Honeymoon, uh, where he was a total wreck at the end, knowing that he had helped bring a man to justice. Is this a development in the Lord Peter Whimsey character? I can't recall this in other books, but it's possible I haven't read enough of them to have noticed. I'm reading some of the short stories here and there. And for example, he actually kills the man with the copper hand and doesn't seem too broken up about it. So is his um, difficulty and sorrow a development in his character? Angelina, I'm going to let you take that one on. Uh, because you've read more of his work, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Okay, well, well, for this, for this, because uh, it's been a long time since I've read all of them, uh, for this I have to give credit to our fantastic listeners who all chimed in, and I, so I was able to remember a lot of stuff from the things that they said. Uh, he's he's torn up at most of, most of the ends of these books, even the first one. The first one, the end of the book, triggers his post-traumatic stress from World War II, one. Um So there is this idea, right, that Peter... He's bearing the guilt of knowing that orders he gave in the war resulted in the death of men. And so when he brings up things, even if it's just, even if the bad guy is totally deserving, and so it's much more clear-cut than, say, in this book where Tallboy is somewhat sympathetic, um, he still struggles with that. He still struggles with feeling the moral responsibility of bringing someone's death about. Uh, so actually, that's pretty that's pretty constant through all the books. And I love that several people made the point that even look, I, I firmly believe everything I said about the liturgy of these kinds of books. I do believe she's bringing order out of chaos. I do believe that it's a movement toward justice and restoration. But what she does so well is show that that comes with a price that comes with a cost in this fallen world. It's not going to be tidy. And, you know, it's the idea of how does an executioner go to sleep at night, right? Like what he's doing is just, but still who can live like that? That's, that's what a, what a, what a burden, what a weight, right? There's a reason why when we have executions now, we have multiple people pressing the button at the same time. So nobody actually knows who's the one responsible because there is a moral weight that comes with that. I imagine if you're a judge and you're sentencing bad guys to death, there is still a moral weight for that, even if mm. they're deserving of it and it's justice. So, so one of the things that Peter does is really struggle with the weight of that moral responsibility. He never takes it lightly. You never see him high-fiving Parker at the end or anything like that. Um, there's a great weight and a great cost, and, and it's a great emotional burden for him, which I think is very, very true. And I really cannot stand any any modern portrayal of this as if it's flippant. That's flippant to put a man to death even if he's deserving of it. Like, but no, that's not flippant. That's this is tragic. Like, every, the whole thing is tragic. The bad guy is tragic. The victim is tragic. Everything's tragic about this. Hmm. One of the uh, Laura, uh, who we answered one of her questions earlier, she also wrote. A, she she shared a quote from a letter that Sarah's wrote to her son John in 1940, and she wrote, "The detective market, thank heaven, has fallen off. I say thank heaven because it was getting bad for people, encouraging them in the delusion that there was a nice." complete simple one and only solution to everything there isn't there's a solution to murder mysteries only because the murder is made to be solved so like within the context of the fiction itself you know you can solve the crime but what's true to real life is is what you're saying there angelina that you're you know it doesn't anytime anything happens to anybody it, it makes for um it, it means there's not going to be anything simple about it right right and even though I think there's a liturgy and a form to the stories, um, I, I appreciate her craft in making it complicated and not overly simplistic. Mm. 
even though her books tend to be, you know, a little more orderly than, say, a hard-boiled detective novel. I mean, I like that she she throws these curveballs at us. You know, it, it just I, when I, I thought about this question, I thought about a conversation I had with my with my students because you know I talk a lot about the world will write itself. You see that in literature a lot. Um, you know, the whole the the movement toward order and restoration. I said, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that there's not going to be horrible chaos created by that. And I had given mm. the example this week about the French Revolution. It ran its course. The world righted itself. But there was blood running the streets. But yeah. it still has not recovered. Same thing in Russia. You know, ultimately communism fell under the weight of its own absurdity. That doesn't mean it didn't throw the whole world into chaos from which we are still trying to get righted. Mm. So, you know, there is always a sense in which we are moving toward restoration, but that doesn't mean we're not going to make a huge mess of it mm. Mm. in the process. Um, okay, so Angelina, this last question is for you as well because you're the resident expert here. Um, we've had a couple people ask about where to go, where to go next, or where to start. You know, I mean, maybe they've read this book. Do they go back to the beginning of the say of the uh, Lord Peter novels, or what? What should they do if they want to keep reading? You could start at the beginning. Just know that it'll. Somebody actually. Uh, confirm this that it will be a bit of a culture shock because it'll be a very different different Lord Peter that you meet in in the first book. Someone referred to him as full volume Peter Whimsey versus a more <laughs> muted one that you find in Murder Must Advertise. I, I personally don't have strong opinions about where to start because I read them all out of order. I only think you have to read the Harriet Vane ones in order. Okay, and so I, of course, I don't know that I did those either. Where does that start? So if someone that wants to just start strong there, strong poison, strong poison, then um. Uh, have his carcass, then uh, Gaudy Night, then Busman's Honeymoon. Then I think there's also a short story that comes afterwards that she wrote, I think, after World War II, so that shows them more settled in their life. And then there she she died with a half-done manuscript, which was about Harriet and Peter, that um, a fan, it's basically fan fiction. I think, well, what's her name? Patton or something like that. Um, ah, I'm drawing a blank. I actually have, have the book. It's in the other room. Uh, I, I consider that sort of a half Dorothy Sayers book because she she outlined the plot, and it was fun. It was fun to see their story kind of carry on. Okay. But um, she she can I think it's Jill Patton Walsh. I think that's her name, and uh, she actually has a whole series of them, which I have not read all of them because now she's just spinning off into her own little thing. And I didn't like all of her choices, but mm -hmm. that's the Harriet that's the Harriet Vane ones. Okay. Most people I think well I don't know I read that some people think the Nine Tailors is her best book that, that's not a personal favorite of mine at all gaudy night is my personal favorite okay okay well that gives people a couple of different options you can go all the way back to the beginning or if you don't want to take on that you could just read the four or five uh, harriet Vane ones to start with strong poison mm -hmm. okay uh tim any final thoughts on uh mere on uh, <laughs> on uh, murder must advertise on, on, on mere must advertise yeah. mere christianity must advertise yeah i i kind of i feel like um dorothy sayers detective stories and i did not get off on the best foot and i'd like to try another one later so i'm going to take i'm so Angelina's glad i'm so glad you're saying that you're gonna love gaudy night tim you're gonna love it it's all about education and women and <laughs> my two favorite things. Well, I just feel like after what you said about Anna Karenina, that you're just ripe to read about some strong, intelligent, wounded woman. I feel like you're just oh, going to connect with this. That's probably fair. That's probably fair. Um, yeah, she's, I mean, Dorothy Sayers' reputation is so high and the mind of the maker is so good that 
I just trust that if I got off on the wrong foot with her detective stories, it's probably either me, or I actually think in this case, this might just not be her best one. It's a different one for sure. Yeah. Um, well, we had a good time discussing it. Uh, thanks for everyone who joined in on the conversation. Um, as we've said previously, the next book we are going to discuss is Flannery O'Connor's collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge. Uh, that The first story we'll discuss is the first one in that collection, which is called Everything That Rises Must Converge. So um, we'll do that one first. Uh, it's one of her more popular ones, one of the, mo- the more well-known ones. Um, and we'll be prepared to talk about Flannery O'Connor. She had some similar opinions on art that Dorothy Sayers mm-hmm. did. So yes. I actually think they'll be yes. pretty interesting companions um, to read back to back. Um, so get a copy of that. If I think everything that rises must converge is available on the internet as a, as a story. I don't think the whole collection is, but I'm pretty certain that one is. Um, and, uh, we look forward to discussing that with you next week's, um, on next, starting on next week's episode. Um, hey David, yeah, can I make a little pitch about what book to buy for Flannery O'Connor? Sure. I know that we're reading everything that rises must converge the collection, but her complete stories, the collection of her complete stories, I think is a better purchase. And the price is probably negligible between the two of them. Um, and you would get, of course, all of her stories. And the other thing that you get is that the foreword written to the complete stories by Flannery O'Connor is it's a wonderful introduction to who she is. So if you want, if readers want to do a little bit of kind of preparation and they don't have time to read all of her letters, they don't have time to read mystery and manner, et cetera, then getting the complete stories that forward is a nice little intro to her biography. And it gives a little bit of a vision of what she's doing in her stories. Tim, is this the one with the white cover with the peacock on it? Yes, that's right. Okay. That's the one I've got. Yeah. There's actually, they also have a second edition of that. That's less white, but still has a peacock. (laughs) Okay, well, I got the old one. If you're look, if you're also looking for um, to learn a little bit more about O'Connor, as you know, the ideas behind her writing and her uh, biography, look up um, uh, Ralph Woods' "The Christ Haunted South," which is incredible. And then there's a biography that came out about four or five years ago by Brad Gooch. And I can't remember. I think it's just called Flannery. Um, right, those huh. are one of those is super expensive because I put it on my wish list. Well, so I guess maybe get them from the library. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm just saying, if somebody wants to send me a book. <laughs> um, hey, while we're on this, I know we're trying to get out of this, but there's also that four-part biography by Paul Elliott called "The Life You Save May Be Your Own." So he takes four Catholic writers: Dorothy Day, Flannery O'Connor, Thomas Merton, and Walker Percy, what? and he does a four-part by. Bi- oh, it, Angelina, you gotta read this thing. You gotta read this thing. The life you save may be your own. It's Look, if somebody one... would just come over here and like do my laundry and cook my food, I could just read twenty four hours a day. <laughs> um, I think they're all, you know, all of this is available on Amazon pretty pretty reasonably. The Gooch one is twelve sixty five on Amazon right now, um, and then also uh, Jonathan Rogers also wrote a biography of her called the T- the Terrible Speed of Mercy, a spiritual biography of Flannery O'Connor. And Ooh, that, and, and that, uh, we interviewed Brian Phillips interviewed Jonathan Rogers uh, on his podcast on the Commons maybe a year or two ago. So, oh, nice. um, if you want to, if you want to listen to that podcast in advance of 
our conversations about her books, you can head over to the Cersei Podcast Network and you know hunt that one down on our on our page. There you can see a specific page for the Commons um, if you click the Media Center on our homepage. So that's a good listen as well. Um, but I think we're gonna have a lot of fun with O'Connor. Um, I think. And Tim gets to be the expert this time. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> um, okay. Well, with that, um, this has been a good conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Angelina and Tim, for joining me for all these. Uh, for all these Dorothy Sayers conversations. Thank you. This was so much thanks, fun. Yeah, it was. And, this was and, a fun series. And thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thank you for your feedback, for your uh, conversation, and for your reviews, of course. Um, yes, I learned so much, by the way, on the Facebook page while we read this book. So that was awesome. Yeah, for sure. Me too. Okay, well, for Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at Cersei, uh, I'm David Kern and saying farewell here on Close Reads. Talk to you next time.